Hi there, and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week, say hello to writer, music teacher, and broadcaster, Ed LeBrock. Ed's just got a new book out called Sound Bites, The Bendy Path of Classical Music from Ancient Greece to Today. And in this conversation on the Storymakers Institute, we're going to be having a chat about the impact of music in the ever-changing world around us. We'll explore where our music comes from, and Ed will invite you on a journey through a living tradition that spans millennia, the tradition of Western classical music. You can unlock full episodes of the Storymakers Institute with full-length episodes available only to paid subscribers. Head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com, fill in your details, and become a paid subscriber today. Hello, Joel. Thanks for having me. Ah, absolute pleasure. Welcome to the Storymakers Institute. I wanted to start by mm, both of us having a meander through a millennium's worth of music, which is really not going to take very long at all. Uh, (laughs) Just a casual five-minute chat. (laughs) But where does the story of music begin for you? Well, I mean, I guess for me personally, it uh, began when, you know, when I was a little child listening to my mum's LPs. But um, I'm not actually an historian, so I have kept it, what I've tried to do is kept it pretty simple and gone with uh, going back to Mesopotamia and before, just before that, the Harappans of the Indus Valley civilizations. So the, the city of Harappa and Mohenjo-Daro as well, who had a very close link with Mesopotamia. I mean, obviously, you know, we could go back to ancient, the dawns of time, ancient, like the dawn of time. But then I think, you know, it's maybe that's not a useful um, place to start. You know, that there's just so so much of that is imagination. We can only imagine that. I mean, I've been talking about that a little bit in my pocket guide to instruments and how instruments may have been discovered. But I suppose there's just so much hypothesis about that, that I wanted to start where the um, where the facts start. Mm. And yeah. what was it about Mesopotamia, in particular the Indus Valley, that, that piqued your interest? Is it because that's where you could find records? Well, it's because you can find records. I mean, like um, Enhedwana, who is the first named composer and actually author in the world, a priestess, a high priestess, and how wonderful that the first named author and composer is a woman. It's just fantastic. Um, so she uh, wrote her words and her music on clay tablets. Um, and with the with the Indus civilization, the thing that really grabs me about this is that here we are with Western classical music, and a lot of our music is based around the idea of the octave and seven notes in the octave, and that division of tones and semitones. Um, and with the Indus civilization, they were absolutely doing the same thing. Indian classical music then gets divided much more subtly into 22 divisions or shrutas. But that that similarity of Indian classical music and their rag and, and uh, tart system, tal system, um, then the way that it just marries and mirrors so much the Western classical system that you you can listen to some music and you just think, 
Well, where is that from, actually? Just with the subtlest of changes, maybe a little slide here or an extra note there, you can have it sound very, very Indian, or you can have it sound like Baroque music. You know, you can have it sound like Bach. So it was that that really began to pique my interest and go, right, this, this seems to be the fount of so much of our music making. Mm. Describe these tablets for me. What, what, what do they look like? What's on them? Well, they're, I'm not exactly sure what, what kind of size they are. I mean, I would, I would imagine that they're the size that you can actually sort of sit on your lap and then uh, carved in with a piece of um, reed. So the tablet would have, the clay would have been damp and then you'd carve your stuff in and then it would be dried and in the sun. So um, mm. the, so, so really like, just like our tablets, you know, that we have these tablets made of, of metal and, and zeros and ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so bigger than a phone, but probably about the size of a, you know, an iPad Pro. Like <laughs> Something you can hold on your lap, but they would be reused. Yes. So in these cities, like particularly in Mohenjo-Daro, which is in uh, what is now Pakistan, um, Mohenjo-Daro used to be on the banks of the Indus, and then the Indus, a wandering river, it wandered away from Mohenjo-Daro, and so Mohenjo-Daro literally became a backwater. But you can go and visit there now, and I visited there many, many years ago, like 20 years ago, on this unbelievably hot day it was close to 50 degrees it was extremely um yeah it was it was just very challenging to be walking out amongst these ruins on in that heat but it was also just very very focusing because you didn't really want to spend a massive amount of time it would just would have been so bad for you um so so i spent a lot of time there with a, an historian who is actually the assistant commissioner of the local area and he's also um, an historian of the Indus Valley civilization. And he was telling me about these tablets that they would reuse. And, um, you know, you just kind of scrunch them all together in a big block of clay and then roll them out again and reuse them. And how, how beautiful is that? <laughs> That's so gorgeous. I love yeah. that. I also love the fact that from the dawns of time, if so far as music is concerned with the story we're telling today, it's also, we really haven't gone that far. You know, we've, we've not really, <laughs> things haven't changed so much in, in a millennium's worth of, uh, worth of time, which is quite yeah, I guess comforting. The, the, the in a way. Imagination and um, it's imagination. And then how do we then make a record of that? Mm. And, and that's some, certainly something that I talk about a lot in sound bites, how that recording not recording the set, well, recording the sound, but recording the memory of music. How do we hum a tune, imagine a tune, and then how do we write it down so that we can recreate it, but perhaps more importantly, how it can be recreated accurately by other people? Mm -hmm. Before we continue on our journey through, through the sands of time, what was the music written for? Were there particular instruments or was it for the voice? Do you recall those, those first pieces? Yes, yeah, Absolutely for the voice. And they had instruments that very much mirror, mirror the instruments that we use today. So plucked instruments, lyres mostly, L-Y-R-E, as opposed to the other type of lyre. Um, so, so these instruments were shaped, uh, the frame was used, well, the frame was the shape of a god or a goddess of, of the worship of the time. And then it was essentially like a harp. 
So you had a frame and then you had a few strings on the harp. Not that many, so certainly not like our modern harp, which can't remember how many strings it has. It's a lot, isn't it? Is it 40 something? Can't remember. Um, but uh, these lyres would have like maybe eight strings, something like that. And once again, they'd be sitting in your lap. So you'd have a full lap at this point. You'd have your tablet where you're writing down your music and then you'd have your lyre and some other plucked instruments as well. Yeah. And sit around the campfire and uh, and play some tunes together. <laughs> well, it is sit in temples. So so the music very much used for worship mm. in temples. So Enhetuano was a high priestess and so she wrote temple hymns and that idea then get, that's um passed through to the Greeks to the who we now know as the ancient Greeks. But they were young once. Well, they, they were. They were young Greeks at one point. Yeah. <laughs> and does that where the journey takes us through to, to, to Greece after that point? Yeah. So so I should say before people sort of get sound bites and think this is going to be a really like deep in in-depth look at classical music, this is the opposite of that. This is a romp through classical music history. I don't know about you, Joel, but, you know, all these years at music college, um, you know, some stuff kind of sinked in, sunk into my brain. But oftentimes I would look at these big textbooks and just go, you know, oh, that's just such a lot of reading. I'm just going to go and play my viola for a half an hour instead. Um, so I don't know, but I was pretty lazy at college. I did the absolute minimum of history work and I'm embarrassed about that now. But one of the things that I found a block when I was sort of 18 or 19 was this, you know, denseness of the of the books that we were expected to read. And it's totally fair enough. Of, of course we should read it. You know, doctors read medical books. Lawyers read law books. Of course, I, I should have read it, but but I didn't. And um, I what I wanted to do was write a book which would bring us into this world and give a quick overview, something that you can literally read easily in a weekend. And then from there, people can go, oh, I'm interested in this. I'm going to go and find out more about that and find a dense history book about that subject. But to me, there was a, a hole in publishing of a quick book of the history of Western classical music. So that's what I've tried to do. So we move, so going back to your question, we move very quickly from the Mesopotamians to the ancient Greeks. In fact, I think we do it. Half a we page. Cover that. <laughs> yeah, we cover it in about, in about two pages, maybe. <laughs> Actually, maybe fewer. It might be half a page. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good point that you raise because uh, I remember, you know, in my uh, university days where uh, where early music was, you know, the Renaissance, you know, ooh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, and, and there was sort of nothing really that took us further than, than that and that actually the way in which music was taught was in a very kind of confined, controlled period of time where sort of nothing really happened after the, the turn of the 20th century and nothing really kind of happened uh, pre-Monteverdi, uh, one of the uh, early earlier, but not earlier yeah. so far as ancient Greeks, but, you know, one of the yeah. earlier composers. So it was very much sort of within this uh, this this period of, of, of time. And, and we also yeah. learnt that perhaps Western art music, which we can totally dissect or Western classical music, depending on what, how you like to describe your definitions of what music is. But uh, there was also this sense of 
that it was very much a linear process. And mm. in your experience in researching for this book, Soundbites, mm. has that been your experience, that there has this been this linear progression of music over time and that's the story that's well, been created? Yes, in a way, but then the line has a, has a slow curve to it. So in some ways, you know, we, we actually do go back and we come round again to these simple songs. I mean, in, in some pop music, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of pop music, but um, some pop music is remarkably simple two or three chords, someone playing a guitar and singing. Well, that is what the ancient Greeks were doing. It's just that it wasn't a guitar. It was an instrument called the gishkadi. Um, the the way that we write music, it started off with um, very simple symbols with enhedwana. And in many ways, we've gone back to that with guitar tabs or with contemporary music symbols where often people will come away from the um, standardized way of, of writing music and composers will make up their own ways of writing music um, and we've gone from a single line of chant in the early christian church to a single line of chant again with people like goretzky so absolutely things i think things come and go and there can be evolutions. There are sometimes revolutions. But, um, you know, I mean, I guess ultimately we have these limits of sound and uh, limits of rhythm. And it's, well, what, what can we do with that? Mm. It, it almost feels like it's a, it's a linear and it's also these circles as well. Kind yes. of coming back to these ideas over time. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, a few months ago, uh, Charlie, my wife and I, we went out to Charleville and uh, went camping out there for a few days. And it was just spectacular. And they had a, um, an astronomer out there and because it's so wonderfully dark. And we went out on the stargazing night and looked through um, his very impressive big telescope. And he explained to us the way that the solar system works. And it's something like a Catherine wheel, that there's these sort of arms that shoot off, that it's basically, it's a swirl, but then you've got um, little bits that, that sort of shoot off the side. And I think in some ways that the, the evolving of music is the same thing, that Ultimately, we will always come back to the single line of song because that's who we are as as humans. But then we will go off on sidearms like John Cage and his four minutes thirty three, um, or we'll we'll go off with uh, like Arnold Schoenberg and his experimentations into serialism. But then we'll always come back to a song where we have a feeling of tension and then release. Because I think as humans and as lovers of story, because basically song is about story, we will always come back to that. Mm. It's almost in a way kind of paralleling life, coming back to the things that we deeply know. We go off and explore yeah, right. and then we come back to the things we know. It's like Absolutely. Home. I mean, it's that classic thing of show me the child at what age seven. is it? Is it seven? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll show you the man. It's yeah. absolutely, you know, listen to the music, the early developments of music, and, and we have the same thing now. Tell me what was on your mum's LPs. Oh, she had a great variety of LPs, actually. So we had Dave Brubeck, Take Five, uh, Jacqueline Dupre, John Williams, the guitarist, uh, Astrid Gilberto, 
a bit of Dionne Warwick. Um, yeah, huge variety of stuff. Some singles, some LPs. It was and great. Do you, do you yeah. feel like those those um, those albums are still very much in rotation for you? Well, all I these years I, on, I don't necessarily listen to that particular music so much. I mean, you know, it's all I, I like it all very much. But certainly, oh, and Jacques Lucier as well, the, the the jazz Bach guy. So I think what it did was it is established a certain style of music that I particularly like. You know, I love smooth, the smooth sounds of a, of a song and guitar like Astrid Gilberto. Um, I deeply love the cello and nobody has ever played it like Jacqueline Dupre. You know, no, I don't think anyone has, has made a sound as special as hers. And um, with Jacques Lussier, you know, his playfulness with Bach, I still now will will go, even if it's not jazz Bach, I will go for recordings where there is a lot of life and energy in the Bach recordings rather than, you know, the sort of more solid types of, of Bach recordings that unfortunately don't happen so much anymore. Mm. You talked a little earlier about the very early music uh, being used in a ritual context, in in a ceremonial context, of which you could um, certainly say that that has continued throughout time. But music has also played other roles as well. What did you discover in in the the, the process of unfolding the the history of music through sound bites that surprised you so far as the particular kind of role that music played within a particular societal context or a particular moment in time? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that really surprised me was how much music has been used in war. I mean, I guess that shouldn't be surprising, really, as all military organisations probably around the world, except for possibly the Taliban in Afghanistan, they all have music they march to music they are brought to war and brought to peace by music um but definitely during the french revolution i was really surprised to learn about the importance of music I mean, literally at two ends of the street opposite ends of the street you would have the opposing sides singing different songs and the role of musicians was so important in the french revolution and because uh, the french musicians before the revolution were mostly employed by the royalty and the aristocracy. Most of their employers had literally lost their heads. So these musicians didn't have any payment anymore. And so one of the things that came out of the French Revolution was the establishment of the Paris Conservatoire. So that was founded at the, I think it was at the very end of the 1700s. And this was a promise from the revolutionaries that we will establish this place for you, for you to train and become experts and then go out into the world and then we will fund your orchestras. So, so yeah, that, that was a, a big surprise for me. Mm-hmm. Interesting you talk about music bringing people into war but then also bringing peace as well and there's mm. something that to be said about military budget spending and <laughs> what you could do mm. with a little more for music you know <laughs> so far as creating a sense of uh uh world peace if you will well yes i mean uh, you know there's these endless studies it gets so frustrating doesn't it endless studies well when are you actually going to do something about these studies but uh, these endless studies of um of how important music making is for communities who are struggling in 
so many different ways. And, you know, I think of um, Daniel Barenboim in the Middle East with his um, East-West Divan Orchestra, which is made up of Israeli and Arab musicians from all around that region of um, Israel, Palestine, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. And um, you just think how how incredibly positive that has been, even on that relatively small scale. And what would happen if we then really, really enlarge that, the the benefits of that? You know, even through to uh, an extent in Afghanistan, but, you know, clearly that's... Um, completely failed on a music front but that for a small amount of time was a massive massive success those musicians at the afghan national institute of music going and playing afghan music all around the world which is what they did mostly the young women of that institute and it it brought afghanistan to the world and it brought this culture to the world rather than people thinking of afghanistan as a dusty bombed out wreck you know, it's this ancient, really, really important culture. So, yes, um, I, I don't want to get too much into military spending and stuff, but, but you can only hope that more money and more time and effort can be spent on making music. Mm-hmm. Mm. And your experience of being in Afghanistan um, was brought to life in your previous book, Danger Music, um, yeah. which I've never said, I think, to you, but it was it's a truly an extraordinary read and thank you for, for writing it, but also thank you for um, the work that you did in Afghanistan and, and what, um, what bringing, to, bringing to, to, to light and to life uh, the experiences that you had there. Um, do you often think back to that time now, given that Afghanistan is in such a different position now do you stay in touch with anyone yeah I don't stay in touch with people too much it was a very difficult time for them um and in a very different way a very difficult time for me because I was transitioning I was just beginning the knowledge just accepting the knowledge that I needed to transition around that time and so um you know for for young Afghans having somebody who who's transitioning it's it's not something that they need to bring into their already very stressful life, so I I needed to leave and I needed to leave quite quickly. So that was, you know, something that I will always feel very sorry about. That that's something that I needed to do. But you know, that's what happens when you need to transition. So I don't stay in touch with them because I don't want to feel. Well, there's one guy I stay in touch with, but um, he he is in many ways the guy who's probably the most established and has reached the most stable place in his life. But apart from that, um, I think it's probably best, you know, just sort of leaving it mm. as it is. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think of bad Afghanistan probably most days in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Mostly anyway, that I'm very grateful for our very well-functioning bureaucracy. Yes, very much so. And the mm. opportunity for music education and education for all. That's mm. right. Mm-hmm. Mm. Going back to um, the function of music and the way in which it has evolved over time, and when one thing which I suppose the French Revolution and indeed the way it's pre- depicted in uh, <laughs> Les Mis, uh, the, the words do you hear the people sing kind of came up in my mm. mind when you were talking yeah, a little yeah. earlier about that. And so, uh, so there's also something about music and protest. And I just wondered where that, in, you, in going back through the sands of time, where 
that might have emerged in your experience beyond some of the more contemporary uses of protest in music? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess with uh, the early Christian church, um, just the church itself was a protest in a way, and and to sing and fill um, fill basilicas with this new song, although the idea of singing in basilicas was taken from Judaism. But yeah, I, I guess a, a, a song, like a new song like that is a form of protest. But I guess new music has been around forever. You know, Plato was complaining about new music back in the <laughs> many hundreds BTE. He was saying, you know, if new music, if this mu- new music is allowed to take hold, then society is going to collapse. Hey, look you know, at this. I mean... <laughs> yeah. And, and then you, you have this early early Christian music where people were brought together with song. I mean, that must have just been so powerful, especially in those very, very, very early days. Um, but then, curiously, the song of protest then becomes something that is then controlled by the group and is then taken from the group who are the original protesters and is and it's then taken from them and controlled and kind of made into this special thing. So, what happened in the early church, sort of around three four hundred um, of the common era, um, church leaders banned singing from the congregation. This is one of the big shocks of the research that I did for this book. In a council called the Council of Laodicea. Um, these early church leaders said that people in the congregation could no longer sing and that only people up the front of the church could sing based around the ambos of pulpit. So this continued for not just like a few years, it continued for over a thousand years until Martin Luther came along in the 1500s and with his reformation and he said, no, 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 people need to sing. Martin Luther was the ultimate pop musician. He knew that people loved to sing. They loved to sing in big groups. You know, he could have filled a a stadium and he used pop songs. So he took street songs of the time and put them into the church and made them into the chorale. And then Bach in, uh, you know, like a couple of hundred years later was using tunes that Martin Luther tuned, uh, that Martin Luther used. So, so, yeah, I mean, I guess protest is a, originally a protest, but then it becomes just regular and then it's controlled by governing people and and then it gets kind of twisted, I guess. I mean, I suppose that's a story that also goes around through music, sort of going into the 20th century, maybe. It even just reminds me of the um, the song Respect, in a way, which um, mm. which was was originally recorded by an American uh, soul singer, Otis Redding, and then was um, kind of reversed, in a way, uh, to, uh, to, to then be the version that everyone knows and loves from Aretha Franklin, and inverting those lyrics and subverting those lyrics and then becoming kind of what this big anthem is today and now that song while still incredibly iconic and, and incredibly powerful now sort of just sort of it now sort of sits within the ecosystem of, of pop and perhaps people don't necessarily kind of consider um as much what those lyrics were about so in a way yeah that's uh, i suppose just it, another more contemporary um link to 
to songs that people would come across in their in their everyday yeah. to that say that says well actually music uh, continues to evolve even after it's recorded too. Yeah, that's right, and and also music will always be banned. I mean, look at look at the development of music in the Weimar Republic in Germany in the nineteen twenties with all this glorious stuff from people like Kurt Weill. Oh yes, and and then. And, and and Arnold Schoenberg in that time in the twenties and thirties, and then that becomes band music and Tartata music from the Nazis. And these musicians, if they're lucky, they manage to escape. But so many musicians, so many musicians were murdered during that time. Mm, mm. Um, so yeah, I I think that governments around the world and people who want to retain power or, or get power, take power, they will understand the power of music. The Taliban understands the power of music. And that's, that's why, why they, shut they it down. ban it. Yes, that's right. Mm. But, you know, if you go to any party conference or just see it on the TV or whatever, there's always going to be a party song, right? I mean, we've just seen it in the referendum uh, for the voice to parliament, Indigenous voice to parliament. In Australia, the, yeah. Um, you know, whoever gets the best music, well, that's a big win for them. Um, it, it wasn't a big win for the Yes campaign, but but at the time it's like, ah, oh, yes, we've got mm. this song. Mm. We've got the voice. And then, the, then I suppose you can look at um, uh, the way in which Trump over in the US has, has used or perhaps misused music much to the... Um, to the horror of the those who original creators who suddenly are yeah. having their words and music twisted towards something that they may or may not want to actually participate in. Yes, and it, and it makes it even more important that if anybody listening to this who is a songwriter or a musician, retain the rights to your music. Read your contract. Don't just sign it and look at the end figure of the amount of money that you're going to get. Read every single paragraph. If you don't understand it, then ask somebody to help you. But retain the rights to your music because so many places now are doing these sneaky contracts where they will say, oh, here's a lot of money, and you sign away all your rights. I mean, that is something that's been going on forever as well. I mean, there's so many musicians who've been ripped off over history. I mean, going all the way back to Haydn, you know, he was having his quartets published um, overseas without his permission and without him getting any royalties. So, yeah, it's it's so important that if you want your music used in a way that you approve of, you need to retain the rights to it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, it's a it's a it's a tricky tricky world beyond beyond the music and the the kind of core creation of it itself. There's a there's a world that sits around it that which uh, which has to be navigated. Yes, and often you know musicians. You know, I mean, I, I certainly know it myself as a as a musician and a writer that so much energy is put into the creation and the thinking of the book that you get to other points of the book and you're sort of a bit sort of worn out by the creation of it that it's quite easy to not pay quite enough attention to that other side of it. But yeah, I guess we just have to or ask for help. It's always good to ask for help. Edward Brock's new book is called Sound Bites. It's available through HarperCollins uh, Publishing Australia. You can get it in all the places where you can find good books, in particular your independent bookstore. Um, 
Ed, as we farewell uh, some of our audience, I wanted to um, just ask a couple more questions for our paid subscribers, in particular going back to the point that you were talking a little earlier about power and the way in which music has been uh, used for power, but also... Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full and extended episode, all you need to do is head to our website to become a paid subscriber, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com. You know-